0: Ooh, ha ha ha! No, I say, I say to the fans that the fans are the fans, and the fans have the right to have their opinions and to have their
1: reaction. Football, everything. I'm so happy, believe me. I'm so happy. Lewandowski, you know, Robert
2: Lewandowski. Dream team, dream team. Fire, swoosh. I am flabbergasted. And they're here. I wouldn't even let them on the pitch after the match. Get
0: a taxi back to Manchester. <laughs> the only time that tennis balls ever made me
3: angry. What's viral on Twitter for us tonight is tennis balls. These boys are fucking mentality <laughs> giants. It's unbelievable.
1: This is a great football. I'm because these players and where play that rubbish.
0: But, yeah. in August 2020, yeah, we've taken over, and that's the decision. I'm angry. I'm angry, Tony. I have to be honest. With you. Even
2: Kenny, we've won it. So go on, go back to Scotland and get lost. And I'm certainly going to be a part of that. I'm going to manage that. I'm going to make sure we're even better. Well, don't tell us.
0: We didn't warn you, after a season of jinxing to the extreme, we deliver not one, not two, but three tips ahead of the tournament, and all three are still chugging along, be it our great white hope, Italy, Phil's mighty Ukraine, or the super Swiss, who we said could be the dark horses if they were able to safely navigate that groaning group stage flight schedule. We have three pieces of the final aid pie, and it feels good. I'm joined, as always, by Phil Green and Enda Higgins. Hurry, lads? How are
3: we doing? Evening, lads.
0: Later on, we'll be joined by Kenneth Jensen to get the mood from Denmark on their quarterfinal run, hammering Wales in the last 16 and the emotional impact that has been left as was the Christian Eriksen incident against Finland in that opening game. But first, lads, I suppose let's get straight into that last 16. Um, and apologies to any Everton fans looking for our hot takes on Rafa's return to Murray's side or, or maybe... Um, <laughs> Maybe uh in uh, instant response to the to the Jaden Sancho news this evening. Um I think left will have to wait a little bit closer to this new season for that, because we are in Euros mode um and a pretty hectic uh last sixteen all told. And we had I think we have to start on um Monday's fixtures. Two absolutely crazy games. Um absolutely one of the best days in, in tournament history, I think, and a gift that continues to give with the with the fallout from the French camp. Um, over the last couple of days. But let's start with Croatia and Spain. And, I mean, I tweeted midway through the group stage that Spain don't have the goals to go far. Um, Damien Duff was saying it was like watching a death by a thousand cuts. Um, it was fairly painful viewing. And suddenly they score 10 goals now in two games. Um, and they're firmly in the conversation to go all the way. So, who saw that coming?
3: Yeah, like like you, Kev after the first two games of their group stage, they just looked really, really pained. And they, looked, they were just lacking so much. That kind of, and to use his own word, that verticality that Enrique wanted to bring to the side was completely missing. But I suppose you look at the two games uh, that they have kind of uncorked the Cava again, to use an Enrique line, and it's been with Sergio Busquets back in the team. And I don't think that's probably much of a coincidence, to be honest. Um, I think he's he's been able to run things in that team a lot better than, than Rodri was, and he's allowed even further progression from Pedri, who had been quite good, even allowing for stodgy Spanish performances in the first two games. He's really stepped it up, notwithstanding um, him getting credited with a known goal from near enough halfway against Croatia. Uh, but I think Busquets has been one of the keys to getting that side moving. Um, he just he just has freed everything up, and things look a lot freer around him. Um, you, you did mention uh, that we got three pretty good pre-tournament predictions, right? I also want to flag up that at halftime in Spain-Croatia, I said it felt like there was going to be four goals evenly shared and that it could be a game of the tournament, and it's literally exactly what happened. So, listen, I don't want to say that we're on a roll, but we're on a roll. (laughs)
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and also, if you look at Aspillagueta coming in at right back in the back four um, mm, instead of yeah. Marcus Lorente, I think that's a big yeah. thing. You know, I mean, listen, big fan of Lorente, but a- as a fullback for a Cholo Simeone system as opposed to um, an Enrique system, they're two very different things. Um, so that combined with Busquets, and I think Torres and Sarabia probably do offer um, better balance. Yeah, either side of Morata as opposed to Moreno who's having to play left wing really if you're going to play Jared Moreno it has to be instead of Morata rather than with him um, and even when Morata went off uh, against Slovakia um, with then Moreno going out the focal point that's kind of where the goals started to flow um, so he is kind of stumbling his way through the tournament and finding something which is probably what we expected more from the French rather than the Spaniards just because their first two games were so poor but um, considering the level of quality in the squad it, it, it's really helped and it's great to see Gaia come in as left back as well um, uh, You know, I'm a huge fan of his contribution at, at Valencia, I'm sure Jordi Alba, uh, if he's fit and available, will probably start the next game as captain but you know, it's probably one of the best left backs in the tournament outside of the England squad um, so no, it's been a very impressive couple of games for Spain mm. um, and how they've turned it around after the first two games which were just torture, and I'm sure uh, Van der Vaart will be disgusted after, you know, <laughs> basically saying uh, they were disgrace to uh, the beautiful game. But um, uh, and if you actually look in the squad, I mean, there's a lot left to give as well. I mean, Tiago hasn't really kicked the ball in anger yet. Gerard Moreno still has a a lot to prove to, you know, Luis Enrique and the general um, Spanish fans. You know, Fabian Ruiz came in in the second half as well and did very well against Croatia. Mm-hmm. So. You know, you're looking at other squads who probably don't have that level of depth outside of England. Um, So there could potentially be a lot more to come from Spain. So three games away from potentially winning the tournament, you wouldn't want to write them off, especially with that level of experience in the squad.
0: In fairness, with all the um Alvaro Morata stuff um, and between the 85th minute and the 93rd minute, when uh, they conceded two goals for it to go to extra time, they were they were daringly close to becoming a true meme team um, with everything that had gone on.
2: Yeah, like, I, I don't get the Morata thing, to be honest. I mean, this is a centre forward whose cost teams almost 200 million euro in his career. Um, and at times plays like a drunk Charles, Charlie Charles, to be honest, with the confidence level <laughs> on the floor, you know. Uh, you know, compare that to people like Roy Keane aiming the barrels at Joe Felix because he cost 100 million, you know, as a kid. Uh, you know, Morata, I feel, is somebody who should be stepping up as Spain's premium number nine, um, and yet just seems to sink as, as matches go on. He can produce that moment of quality, and he did that in the Croatia match, but if this wasn't a game that had gone to extra time, it would still have been the same old story. So um, you'd still be concerned for him um and his mentality uh, uh, leading the spanish line as the tournament goes on um but we know that will happen because of the support publicly he gets mm-hmm. from luis enrique and the fact that Gerard moreno is is not really um in their plans at the moment even though he was this, the best spanish forward this season um so yeah he seems like a decent guy but this kind of public will of you know Morata will get it right and you know this desperation of wanting him to succeed is is, is kind of beyond me considering that you know pundits in particular are, are waiting for other certain players to fall down um after one mistake so uh yeah listen he seems like a nice guy as well and maybe that's that's part to play you know but um he he wouldn't be certainly a favorite of mine it's going to be a
3: hell of a battle between him and Safarovic for the non-goal scorer and goal scorers uh, in in the next round. <laughs> I mean, like two of the most embattled, like hangdog looking forwards that you could hope to find um, up against each other. If you threw in Timo Werner into the mix, you'd have a holy trinity. Like it's um, it it's interesting that like you look at the talent that has fallen by the wayside, and like Cristiano Ronaldo, Benzema, Mbappe all gone, and then these two lads hanging grimly in. With their couple of goals between them, and never <laughs> ever convincing, with the no matter no matter what sort of chances put in front of them, but they're the ones who are still
2: there, and the other boys are gone. Yeah, no, I, I love the Safarovich story. I have to say, um, I don't know if you watched the Northern Ireland qualifier a few years ago, where the Swiss fans booed him off the pitch, and he yeah. kind of did the fake clap. And I thought his international career was over at that stage. And then Benfica that summer bought in, you know, Nicholas Castillo from South America. They bought uh, Pereira from Shakhtar Donetsk, so he was basically fourth or fifth choice for club at that stage and it looked like he'd be sent out to the wilderness for country so this kind of comeback that he's had both for benfica scoring 26 goals last season and then 27 goals in 2019 and and now leading the line for switzerland it's it's an incredible story so you know it's it's not quite the morata doom and gloom of <laughs> of uh of a guy struggling for confidence but yeah he's had his low moments as well so, so there are parallels but um uh, it will be interesting to see how they go. I, I also found it interesting about Safarovic how little coverage there actually was of him after the match, considering he scored two goals in a three-three draw against France. And it was all about Zaka and the Rodriguez penalty miss, and you know Sommer and all of this. So um, I, I felt he was a bit unlucky not to get more coverage personally.
0: Indy, you flagged up Pedri before a tournament, um, and I mean, looking at his stats, he's played sixty-four games across club and country this season. He's eighteen. He, um, he played 120 minutes against Croatia. Um, I mean, what a tournament he's having. I, like The fact that he's keeping Thiago, who like, obviously Tiago didn't have the best of seasons at Liverpool, but it just goes to show how good this kid is and, and how he's probably going to come out with such an enhanced reputation on the back of this.
2: Yeah well after Tieck's cameo against Sweden um I reckon <laughs> I I've got the red jersey in my back pocket here ready to take that place but um uh no he's a he's a phenomenal talent and um you know it, it it seems bizarre that you know Barcelona were able to swoop in so comfortably after his debut season in Las Palmas um I know the ITV pundits think he came through La Masia <laughs> um due to their in-depth level of research Emma Hayes aside, but um you know he's just everything you would expect from your you know traditional or modern day rather spanish midfielder he's basically xavi and busquets in one really and and or sorry xavi and iniesta and the only issue really is running him into the ground i mean they're trying to take him to the olympics after the euros as well yeah. which is just absolutely ridiculous really um uh, so uh, i i don't know how that'll go he was a huge part of kuman's three man midfield this season he was you know, him and De Jong as the future of Barcelona's midfield is probably the best hope they have of returning to any sort of former glory, especially after uh, Messi leaves in the next few years. But, um, you know, just, you know, it's probably the best performance you'll see in an international tournament from an 18 year old since, you know, Rooney in 2004. Um, it's that level of confidence, wanting the ball all the time, never giving it away. Um, and he just seems to make the right decision all the time. Um, and then obviously Bruce gets coming in behind him, just feels perfect, you know. Coke, I haven't been convinced by him to be honest. Yeah. I feel like he's one of those players who's perfect for Cholo Simeone, but outside of that, he's he's largely ineffective. But uh, you know, I'd rather maybe Fabian Ruiz there, who who's a bit more progressive. Um, Koke actually plays on the wing in a four four two a lot of the time for Simeone, um, and you can kind of see that. But you know, he's not a bad option to have either. Um, but uh, yeah, if Pedri can stay fit and healthy somehow after all the matches he's played, he'll be a huge part of Spain's success.
0: France, Switzerland, lads, I mean, what a game. Um, just to kind of like to recap everything that happened, I mean, the Switzerland going ahead, first of all, like you mentioned with Severovic scoring. Um, France going 3 1 ahead. You had Pogba scoring that absolute screamer and then the kind of little dancy celebration. It was like you know going through his repertoire of um of FIFA moves you know to get them out of the way um Benzema's first goal i mean was unbelievable i mean one of the best goals i think i've seen um just the touch to bring it forward and and the finish as well was was unbelievable and that's just all been <laughs> all been overlooked with uh with the, with the finish with um Gavranovic's 90 minute equalizer and then on to on to penalties i mean such a crazy game but ultimately Kylian Mbappe Stepping up for that fifth penalty, he hasn't been having a great tournament. There's been kind of murmurs that there's a little bit of a rift between himself and some of his teammates. There's kind of maybe talk that he's a little bit too big for his boots. That he hasn't necessarily had the best kind of surroundings at PSG, playing alongside Neymar, um, didn't have a didn't have a great game against the Swiss. Uh, stepping up for the fifth penalty, and he misses. I mean, I mean, what a moment! Uh, it, It felt a little bit inevitable when I I saw him stepping up. But, I mean, what a game.
3: Like, I think if you said to anyone who'd finished that Croatia-Spain game that they hadn't actually seen the most exciting, um, well, I was going to say 90 minutes, but 120 minutes plus of football that day, that they definitely wouldn't have believed you. Because everything about France-Swissland beforehand just had 2-0 France- 41 and 79 goals written all over it. Like it was just going to be the most by the book, boring, dull, Switzerland aren't really going to fire much of a shot and France are going to win doing France things. It was written all over it. And from the off, like I think Switzerland, I thought in the first half and in the first half of the extra time, I thought were really, really excellent. And I think because of how good France were for that 20 minute burst and then how they completely fell asleep, I think it's kind of been a little lost quite quite how good Switzerland were. Um, like they were, they were really good value for, for their win. Like it, it showed, France were playing this just three at the back for a while, like this monstrosity, and it, uh, Switzerland were playing a system that they always play three at the back, and it showed who was the side who knew the system and knew how to work it. <clears throat> got Zuber on the ball constantly, got at France out wide with that. I thought they were really, really good, um, but like when when France kind of roared back to life for those twenty minutes and. You know, the, the Benzema goal, which again, Pogba's kind of overshadowed it, but that Benzema touch for the first goal was uh, like the were well, two yeah. brilliant touches to, t- to bring it under his spell, and the finish then was like incredible. And the 3 1, you're like, well, this could easily be 4 5 1, and we'll completely forget about the fact that Switzerland has ever led. It started to feel quite like Ireland in the last 16, five years ago, in that, you know, there was a lead for a good while, and then it just disintegrated. But, um, France really just kind of sat their laurels then and I don't know whether it's because like they were they had been involved in this kind of quite expansive game that they don't normally get pulled into or what but um, it wasn't the sort of thing that Deschamps would normally get from them in that like they're normally quite functional and they'll do the job and from 3-1 up you definitely wouldn't have imagined them losing it I guess it's because it was Switzerland as opposed to if they get 3-1 up on a Portugal or a Germany you think they're going to see it out maybe they just underestimated the Swiss but like it was just, it was fucking primal. It was brilliant, and I didn't think Switzerland had it in there, but they absolutely did. Uh, it was great, and um, like you said, with, with Mbappe, with the tournament he'd had, with the game he'd had, I thought he really stunk. To, like I like there parts of the tournament I thought, like against Germany, he was probably France's best player uh, outside of Pogba, mm. and like he's been, he little tiny flashes, but I thought he was really actively bad against Switzerland, and that just put the kind of the. The cherry on top of that penalty, which was a terrible penalty as well, um, yeah. So like, I no, I say I couldn't have predicted it. I did actually have Switzerland back <laughs> but that was more uh, of the fact that I asked my fiance to pick the winners of the last sixteen, and she picked favourites bar uh, Czech Republic and Switzerland, and that made me sit up and take notice. So I doubled them up. So the two upsets, I I managed to get in there. Uh, so, but I p- personally couldn't have predicted that Switzerland would win. And I definitely wouldn't have predicted
2: him winning a rollicking good 3 all draw and win on Penos. Yeah, it was <clears throat> even more incredible than the Spain match somehow. Um, and I think the Swiss deserve a lot more credit than they've gotten. I mean, they really call France's bluff, especially giving Rabio on the left-hand side so much space in that first half that he was basically not able to do anything with. It gave them a lot more... Uh, Control in the game to really crowd the right-hand side and the middle of the park where, you know, Zaka was phenomenal, if we're we're being honest. He wouldn't be certainly my favourite player uh, in the past five or six years. But, um, you know, it was basically a team who knew exactly what they were about, who knew exactly what they were trying to do in a match against a manager and a group of players who just threw shit at the wall and hoping it would stick because it worked in 2018. Um, And that's really where... The problems have begun for France. I mean, Deschamps stumbled across this fullback pairing in 2018 after having so many injuries leading into that tournament. I mean, Pavard and Hernandez were traditionally centre-backs for Stuttgart and Atletico. He'd, he already had his partnership with Varane and Amtiti, so he just kind of had to go with this pair because he had so many injuries in that fullback position. They stumbled their way through the tournament, mainly because of Matuidi's uh, influence on the left-hand side in midfield. Um, there was no real reason why three years down the line after they've both struggled at Bayern, after they've both struggled playing fullback for Bayern and France, that, you know, Atiyah Hernandez, Ferran Mende, Lucas Dubois shouldn't have been in that friend squad at the very least, never mind starting for them. You know, the backup is Luca Dean, who's again had injuries, issues for France and Everton and Barcelona throughout his career. So it's that kind of culmination of trying to generate that 2018 spirit that just isn't with the French squad anymore and and we're seeing that with you know this outrageous leaks now that are coming out (laughs) in terms of you know you just imagine Rabiot's mother with her hands on her hips shouting at Mbappe's family and then they're shouting back your son shouldn't even be playing for France and You know, Varane (laughs) then takes it out on Pogba after uh, Pavard blamed Pogba instead of looking at him. It was just like, I mean, I hope there's a 30 for 30 documentary on just the French (laughs) drama of 2021 (laughs) because it just sounds absolutely phenomenal and delicious and so French. Um, And part of me is a bit disappointed that they're out of the tournament because when they did turn it on for those 20 minutes, it was just absolutely outrageous. I mean, Griezmann to Benzema, back to Pogba. Um it was just everything was flowing and, and you thought they'd blow them away maybe four one, five one. Um and that's really the problem for France. That that's the level that they should be producing time after time. And they've never really hit that. Even in twenty eighteen, maybe the Argentina match was the only one where they were able to, you know, blow them away for that fifteen or twenty minute period, especially Mbappe on the right hand side in that game um and yeah he just had a disastrous match and you know when when he did step up to to take that fifth penalty um I've never been more convinced since maybe Phil Jones against Sunderland in 2014 <laughs> that a, a guy just wasn't going to wasn't going to score it's just like anybody who's watched football for a sustained period of time just knows when somebody is going to miss a penalty when everything has gone wrong for them and it was that type of night and It'll be interesting to see where they go from here because a year out from the World Cup, you know, a bit like England, to be honest, they they have so many options domestically, so many players who haven't featured in squads who probably should have, and they really need a good 12 months to tie it all together because they've had three years to get it right and haven't really nailed down. Um, they have to a point, obviously, but it's mainly based off the 2018 framework, which really should have been upgraded by this stage Um, and it'll be interesting to see how they manage it for the next 12 months ahead of the next tournament Um, because Deschamps is probably the most stubborn manager in an international tournament so um, it'll be interesting to see can he turn over a new leaf and integrate more players because I mean looking at that French under 21 squad that played in the Euros in the summer I mean the group of midfielders was actually stronger than the midfielders that actually went to the Euros for the senior team so um, there's a lot of work to be done there.
0: Yeah, I mean, when you look at the team that started, and you kind of start listing off some of the names, that aren't there? I mean, you're kind of blown away. Like, major example is um, Clement Longley, center mid or center defense rather. While um, the um, the port is 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 starting for France or for Spain rather. I mean, that just kind of summarizes perfectly where France are at the moment. Um, and Adrian Rabio as well. Like, and we 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 know. Your thoughts on Rabio. but I mean, just I, to sum up, you know, everything that's happened since the game off the field. And, uh, and yeah. it, it sounds like there was a kind of eruptions during the game. Um, it, it, it did. And,
2: yeah, yeah. I mean, when it comes to Rabio, what people need to know is that his mother has basically been a shit stir her throughout his career. They started at Man City, basically, when she was demanding insane contracts. Um, he didn't sign a deal there when he was in the academy, moved to PSG because he had good PR, mainly because of what his mother was pushing out there. Um, this is like, you know, Richard Williams with Serena and Venus, except the fact that their their kid isn't actually as talented as that, you know. It, it's that level of bizarreness, total control over his career. Um, you know, when he was linked to Barcelona, all of that came from her um, PSG fans absolutely despised The way the negotiations went about Renewing his contract Which led him moving to Juventus on a free And again the PR has just been non-stop From the Rabiot camp Mainly driven by her And Deschamps has got caught up in it That's the reality I mean <laughs> this is a guy who has refused to be uh, A backup in, a, in the World Cup squad in 2018 I mean how is that somebody Who you would want around in your squad Two or three years later um, He's an okay midfielder But that's about it. Um, You know, even the space he got at left back last night, especially in that first half, a competent player would have been able to make use of that. There was one point where he literally had to lay across the Benzema at the six-yard line, and he he hit it two metres over his head. It was just bizarre. Um, And then you hear the reports after that, you know, his mum blamed Mbappe and said it to his family. Like, imagine you're Mbappe's parents and Rabio's mother comes up to you after a match. Three years after you helped your country win a world cup. And she's saying, your son's a piece of shit and causes the match. It's just bizarre. It's the most French thing you could think of. You know, it's like, you know, the male version of Amelie here or something. <laughs> it's just like, you know, there's so much drama surrounding this guy. And that's how he's got into my head. It's just like, What is it? You know, even he, I I just don't get it. I don't see it. He occasionally produces decent performances and that's about it. Um, He should be nowhere near an international squad. He should be nowhere near somebody who's demanding moves to Barcelona or even Juventus that it happened. Like it was just, uh, I've I've never, never, ever seen it. Um, And, you know, Deschamps somehow let himself get caught up in that. I mean, you look at the French midfielder. I mean, even though he's not, pulled up trees at Spurs, but Undambele is so much more technically gifted, so much more physical, so much better on the ball at progressing the play. And you think of all the players (laughs) must be looking at this guy with his fucking man bun, you know, on the pitch. (laughs) It's like, I just, it's, I I don't know how it's got to me so much more than any other player on the planet, Uh, but It has, and France have suffered because of it. So there you go. Three (laughs) years of dedicating my life to this guy. And uh, in the words of Heisenberg, I won. I won. (laughs) I cannot believe,
3: on the night that Jaden Sancho of Manchester United has announced, that the player Enda has done three solid minutes on has been (laughs) Ravio. This is incredible.
2: This in fairness, work I, had a, of I had magic prepared on Sancho, and then Kevin <laughs> cut it off in the intro. And I was, oh, I was like, right, okay, uh, got to gotta readjust yeah. here. So, yeah, there we go. Uh, and the tweets, I get, like, you know, it's just nonstop being tagged in anything related to Rabio, But it was worth it in the end. <laughs> it was worth it.
0: No, I I couldn't have any Sancho stuff tonight. I knew I knew I knew I could set you up for a, for a, a little bit of a rabbi ramble um Ramble there. Um, and I suppose the best thing is that it the World Cup is only what fourteen or fifteen months away. So um, by all accounts, Deschamps is is going to keep his job. Um, so we kind of get to enjoy this for a little bit longer and see how he uh he uh he makes that camp a little bit rosier because it, it was definitely would have been a very icy bus home, um from the game the other night. Um moving on to one of the other last 16 games, and this is one I kind of had circled as um, a possible, um, not necessarily giant killing, but a little bit of an upset in terms of Czech Republic beating the Netherlands. And like we were kind of raving about the the Dutch last time out, um, like Wijnaldum in particular, Malen, like Some of these players are just looking fantastic, um, don't freeze on the right-hand side. But I think when you kind of scratched under the surface just a little bit, they didn't seem to have any real structure or idea of what they were doing. They just kind of seemed to be going with the flow, and the Czechs just completely tore them apart. I mean, the space that was being opened up across the midfield. Um, while Wylaldum had probably one of his worst games for, for the, the Dutch in a long, long time. And uh, in fairness to the Czechs, I mean, Patrick Schick again with another goal. They, they looked like a really decent side, and I think... They just completely out-taught and, and, out, and out-played and the, the Dutch on this one.
3: Yeah, like, Holish in particular, the, uh, the Czech midfielder, did a mm. total job on Wijnaldum. Kind, the sort of job that Wijnaldum has probably been doing on other players for Liverpool, if that makes sense, in terms of just a real targeting and nullifying, really took him out of the game. Like, there was that mad stat that he would make 10 yeah. passes over the entire thing. Um, you're, that's because Holish just followed him everywhere. Everywhere when Alden was, that's where Hoolage was, and um, I suppose we, we we did like we were very impressed by the kind of devil may care attitude that the Netherlands had put forward. Haven't been kind of tired with a very boring brush by the manager's brother before the tournament, uh, but they kind of regressed back to the mean of what people thought of the Netherlands before the tournament, and um, they kind of surprised us all a little bit by how uh, entertaining they'd been. Um, but yeah, they, they came up against a side who were, were well-organized, a side who have, who bet England in qualification for this tournament. I know the, the, the English qualification was secured at that stage, but still, I mean, not to be sniffed at. The um, side, so like you said, with Schick uh, in, in really good form at the minute. And he, he, took, he took up a weirdly deep kind of average position. He was like the, only the third or fourth uh, furthest forward Czech player on, in terms of his average position in this game. Which kind of suggests that he's doing a little bit of the Harry Kane sort of thing in terms of dropping deep and knitting things together, because he is obviously their, like their their most technically talented player, a- along with the kind of two more robust uh, West Ham lads. But um, they're just they're they're a well put together side. And um, I don't think Denmark Czech Republic now will be a, a thriller off the back of it. I, I don't think that the side are set up to be thrillers exactly, but they were probably the sort of side that the Netherlands didn't want to run into. Uh, in, in a way in that there wasn't somebody who kind of come out and and go uh, yeah. kind of to them like ukraine did in the group for example uh, because then they do have people like Malin and, and Depay who can hurt them and when yell them and give them space can do stuff but it was just kind of it was pretty uh, responsible from the czech republic it was well thought out and well put together and like you said they were out thought and I know another of Enders favorites is the former Netherlands manager Frank de Boer who <laughs> in, in, to nobody's surprise was out yeah. by uh, by an, another coach in, in a knockout game so uh, I suppose that we kind of are back to where we thought we were with the Netherlands before the tournament as opposed to that kind of pleasant surprise we thought we were getting during the group stage
2: I'm calm after my Rabio, <laughs> and uh, I, I, in fairness, I, I I gave Frank a hard time in the last one, so I'm not going to go again. But um, I, you know, part of the Netherlands' success really was the the senior players standing up, especially in that group stages with Depay and Wijnaldum. Uh, and as soon as that let them down, um, there were cannon fodder really for, for the uh, Czechs. Um, and Delish, in particular, um, bizarre type of sending off, really, where <laughs> you know where you're trying to understand what what just happened. Um, but um, I don't think it's any coincidence that in you know a season that was so affected by COVID, where internationals were thrown in the middle of you know all these countries having you know different regulations and quarantine issues and everything, that the teams who are more experienced and who are, are more solid, like the Czechs, the Swiss. You know who have been just steady throughout the last two to three years, as opposed to you know slightly more flaky like the Dutch, the French, uh, the Germans, etc. Who have changed uh, formation, who have changed personnel. Um, England, to a lesser extent, um, you know, time after time, just trying to find that right balance. Whereas Denmark, the Czechs, the Swiss, they've kind of been using those same experienced players throughout, and now it's coming to fruition where they can go into a match knowing that they're not going to be let down by these players, and then it just takes somebody like Schick to you know, really elevate them to that next level uh, because of the talent he has, that he's you know, sh- he's showing his Sampdoria form again, that, you know, Roma were desperate to find, that Aubrey Leipzig were desperate to find, um, and then you throw in you know, the form of who were coming off the seasons of their careers, I mean, everything is kind of clicking for the Czechs, uh, and they were just too street smart, really, for the Netherlands um, and you know, very impressive, and um, it'll be interesting to see how it goes, I-, I-, I do think they'll get through the next round as well, just because of the experience and they don't seem to have that you know emotional toil throughout the squad as well everything is just very calm with them um you know I mean that first match against Scotland in particular could have been very tricky because there was you know so much emotion in that stadium for Scotland being in a major tournament at home for the first time in such a long time and the Czechs just dealt with it very comfortably and professionally and I think that says a lot about where the squad is at at the moment um and uh yeah I'm I'm interested to see how they go from here
0: on Belgium-Portugal then, Lens, I mean, Portuguese were coming off that fairly one-sided uh, defeat to Germany. I know kind of, we spoke about that last time, but the Belgians, you know, they did the job. Portugal, I think they had like 23 or 24 shots, um, but only four or five on target. And they never really got going. Um, and another kind of tournament goes by where, you know, they didn't necessarily light up the group stage. Um, just one win over the three games. And, um it, it just never seemed to click for them especially in attack where you might you know you can have ronaldo um and it's everywhere everyone is kind of geared towards making ronaldo or giving him the chance um you know it looked like he was about to throttle diago jota a couple of times over the course of the game um bruno fernandes didn't even start it was a little bit of a surprise considering um his season at, at man united um but um i mean wasn't probably the best of games, one of the worst, I suppose, to watch over the course of the last 16. But um, Belgium must be pretty happy with the with the win there.
3: Yeah, like I I think for Belgium, it'll be a case of job done without being overly exciting. They weren't attacked in a way that would worry them too much. I don't know how much Portugal did that would have frightened Belgium in the same way that, say, Denmark would have frightened them in that first 45 in the group stages. Uh, you you really get the sense that Belgium's weak points are down the side of that back three. Uh, with old man vertongen and old man Vermaelen, who played with Yari Littman and uh, with Yari Littman, and, <laughs> and is now playing in Euro 2020. <laughs> Yari Littman played in the 1995 Champions League final, and Vermaelen is playing in a tournament with people who were born in 1999 and 2000, uh, which kind of shows you the man's age. But they 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 weren't exposed uh, by the Portuguese system, and I think like we we know that Santos' system is like the ultimate end justifying the means. And like you said about the, the group that this time they didn't light it up, they definitely didn't light it up in 2016, but because they won the tournament and justifies the means, it feels like that Portuguese side has moved on a fair bit in the last five years and that it's not best served by the type of football that he wants to play. His team selection for the for the Belgian game did reflect that a little bit. It was a little bit more positive. Um, Sanchez played. He, f- he probably had to because he'd been probably the most impactful Portuguese player. But they didn't really fire a shot in the way that you'd like them to fire a shot and um, it, like it's close enough to the World Cup now that you'd imagine he'll still be there for it but I mean if he's going to keep up this way of playing which you'd imagine he will they're not going to do a whole pile there either um, like they're they're just I think a little bit out of step at this stage um, like you see uh, I can, it was a less extreme version of what happened with Deschamps and his kind of ends just to find the mean football but if the results don't come playing this way it gets very grim very quickly and I think that kind of happened with them here and um, he, he he's been kind of exposed a small bit in that when the results don't come it's hard to to justify how you're playing that way when you've got Ronaldo and Joe Felix and Bruno Fernandez and Bernardo Silva and Diogo Jota and Adrian Silva and I'm pretty sure I left somebody out so like you know you can't play that way if you're not going to fucking win and and they didn't
2: Yeah, it kind of goes back to what we said pre-tournament, actually, in terms of getting stuff right, which we all deserve immense credit for, obviously. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But Santos has never really found that balance in his front four. Um, uh, Especially with Bernardo, Bruno, Ronaldo, and then one of the others is usually either Jota or João Felix. But, you know, he's again, it goes back to my point about Deschamps Still trying to find that balance as you're going into a tournament. Um, And even in the warm-up games, he was mixing and matching. Uh, And then to start such a negative pivot behind that, two players who who weren't in form, uh, when he could have easily gone for the club combo of of Moutinho and Neves, which is far more reliable uh, in terms of what you're going to get from them. Um, And and then even the weirdness of, you know, Cancelo tested positive, so they sent him home when he actually would have been able to play (laughs) against um, Belgium if he'd stuck in the squad because he would have been recovered and, and passed all the tests. Uh, And then all of a sudden you're in this situation where you have Diogo Dalot starting as right back uh, because Semedo had such a car crash group stages. So it was all just a bit, it was very similar to the French and that kind of, you know, errors stricken everywhere in terms of squad formation uh, style of play. Um, And Santos has really struggled to adjust to the pragmatic team he had in 2016 to this more, flair side that everybody expects now from bernardo and, and joe and, and bruno fernandez with ronaldo um and renato sanchez and they've so much coming through like the french as well at under 21 yeah. level um it's like phenomenal talent uh pool in portugal um and you know he'll, he'll stick it out for another year because the world cup is just too close similar to deschamps again the parallels are, are extremely similar across the board but um i think once that's over you'll you surely have to look at one of these young progressive portuguese coaches that seem to be you know thrown all over europe at this stage to really take this squad to to a different type of direction and level because the santos days are they're kind of done in terms of the way international football is going now and i think you know, Portugal really suffered heavily in terms of their their tournament preparation, and and still not knowing who who was going to fill those kind of front three roles behind Ronaldo and and Jota looked far more nervous than he has ever done for Liverpool mm. or Wolves. Fernandes tried too hard because he's never really turned it on an international level and had a really poor World Cup in 2018. You know, Santos ignored Bernardo for two or three years after he was lighting it up for Monaco, and then moved to City, and then just threw him in and you know, Bernardo has always been kind of trying to prove himself coming from the back, if you like. Um, so there's a lot going on in that Portuguese squad. And and, and I I think they all question how much faith Santos has in them in terms of that front four in particular. Um, and I, I think that's really what came to fruition in this tournament, where they just couldn't get that flow going at all. Um, and, and And Belgium were quite comfortable in the end.
0: Well, yeah, on Belgium then, I mean... There's still something very unconvincing about them. And like we saw how poor they were against um, Denmark in that first half without Kevin De Bruyne and Hazard. And now both of those are ruled out of, of the um, the Italy quarterfinals. So um, like if they do repeat a performance similar to that 45 uh, against Denmark, I mean, they'll be going home pretty swiftly if, if Italy show up.
3: Yeah, you'd imagine um, that if they don't start to recruit or if they don't start to kind of hit the gears that they hit maybe second half Against the Danes, that um that they're going to be up against it. I mean, De Bruyne, I'm not sure actually on his status. I don't know if we know yet. Uh, what what he's going to be I like for? Think um, he's
0: been ruled out.
3: Has he? Well, that's yeah. that like that. That's a massive massive blow. I mean, I mean, how stupid do I sound saying Kevin De Bruyne being out of a massive blow? <laughs> but like, I mean, he completely turned the game around nearly single handedly against Denmark, um, and like he he is a real difference maker to them. Like Lukaku always looks threatening, but he probably needs that. That link that De Bruyne brings better than anyone probably in the world, and um, even even Eden Hazard, who I thought played more like Eden Hazard against Portugal than I've seen in a long time, and it was actually quite nice to see. Um, I think he, he's he's injured as well. I don't know if, again. I don't know is he out? But like all these kind of creative tent poles that Belgium have are kind of being taken away, and the more that happens, and the more you're asking them to rely on keeping it solid and getting it to Lukaku. I just don't think they're going to be able to keep it as solid as they might like, and um, and and if if the is out, like you say, Kev, uh, and they go up against Nittly side, who definitely will get down the side of them. Spinazzola, you can imagine, will be all night on that overlap and coming in, and um, and like Baratti and Insignia will be going at them. Um, I, I I I agree. I think that they're they're up against it unless they can they can kind of find a way around De Bruyne's absence, which is much easier said than done.
2: Yeah, I think Italy would be all over them, to be honest. I mean, they were a defensive shambles uh, against Denmark in particular. Um, and now they won't have, you know, De Bruyne and Hazard to call on to kind of just give them that aura, if you like, that, you know, you would expect from Belgium in the past three to four years. Um, I remember this is a team that is playing centre-backs all in their, you know, early to mid-30s, so not very mobile, except for Denier, who, whose confidences are pretty low in this tournament. And they're playing wingers who, at, at fullback in Carrasco and Torgan Hazard, who in fairness has had a good tournament so far but hasn't come up against somebody like Braddy, really, in terms of his form and confidence. Um, you know, Witzel has just come back from injury, so there's going to be you know huge pressure on him and I just don't think they can feed Lukaku enough of the ball without De, De Bruyne and Hazard. Um, and uh, yeah, I, re- I really don't fancy them to go through this one. Um, I think Martinez is you know, he wings it a bit, you know, um, in terms of, you know, getting through an individual quality as opposed to, you know, shape or formation of style of play. It's just when you have that amount of talent at his disposal, obviously one of them are usually going to do something to bail him out. Um, And that's what we saw several times in 2018. And it's what we've seen in this tournament so far, but Belgium's general play hasn't been great. Whereas Italy, it's like the polar opposite. It's kind of you know better than some of their parts. Really, everything just is so free flowing and smooth. It's like the players have known each other for an extremely long time, and I think their confidence couldn't be higher at the moment. Um, uh, and I just think it's it's a step too far for Belgium.
0: Quick word on Italy then, and I mean it was a different type of win for them against Austria, who stifled them pretty pretty well over the course of the the ninety minutes and taking it into extra time. Um, and then obviously F- Federico Chiesa coming on to to make the difference there and. Get that first goal, um, like Mancini seems to have every type of win so far, and um, this one a little bit different to what we saw in the group stage, where they kind of had to work a little bit harder. But um, they're tricking along nicely, and I mean they will fancy themselves against uh, Belgium, and I suppose Mancini still has a couple of headaches over you know his selection. Do you bring Kias in, in from the start, um, Locatelli as well? Uh, who didn't start against Austria over uh, Ferrari? So, um, but I mean, Italy still look really, really strong, don't they? And I, I, they're not the bookies' favourite anymore. But I still fancy them if they did meet um, any of the teams, including in England, in the other half to draw in a, in a final. You'd have to fancy Italy.
3: Yeah, well, I, I suppose the, the Austrian game was nearly a more kind of classically mm. Italian performance in, in a major tournament in that. Things were pretty tight at both ends of the pitch. I thought Austria did a really good job out of position or out of possession. Rather, they had that kind of back five locked in, but their their three in midfield actually pressed up relatively high, and just kind of said to Italy, "You can have this little pocket in between our three and our five, but all you're going to be able to do is shoot." And they weren't really able to do anything with it until, as you said, Kev, the the subs came in and made the difference. Um, but I, it was more kind of a, a classically Italian game, I suppose, more patient and um, definitely build on complete confidence that at the back. Uh, Chiellini and the lads were going to sort it, and that it was going to be fine, which it was. Um, I suppose pleasingly for Mancini, uh, not only were his reserve side able to see off Wales in the group, there's real impact off the bench now in two subs scoring as you said, Filiquesa and and uh, Pasina coming on and, and scoring those goals. Um, I suppose that gives them great kind of solace and kind of encouragement going forward that it's not just this kind of magic combo of like eleven or twelve that he has that just happened to be working that there is actually depth and kind of a squad there that is working in, in real harmony. I think you're right. There shouldn't be fear for them really with any no. side that are left. Um, they, 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 not, they look like they know how to win in different ways. I suppose it's still that same thing that we said about them after the group stages, that every step they take now is still a step into the unknown. So every step further they go, they are testing their limits a little bit. But until they show us those limits, I suppose we have to give them the benefit of the doubt because they're on a great run they're in uh, they're in really good form. They seem to be a quite close-knit squad. They've got probably the best manager left, or one of the best managers for sure, as we said before. So I think they're given every bit of confidence that you need from them. Uh, and until they show us their limits, I think we probably have to give them the benefit of doubt
2: as, as a side who can take on nearly any comer. Yeah, Fine. definitely the most confident squad in the tournament Italy, you know, in terms of every single player knowing what they need to do and really summed up by the fact that Pessina and Chiesa did come in and get them over the line. Um, so, you know, they've been extremely impressive throughout. the certainly been my favourite team to watch. Um, and, you know, it's been great to see this revolution of Serie A. Really good. You look back at 2012 and, and 2016, for example, and they, they always just looked like struggling and relying on these older-type playmakers in particular um where it's completely transformed now into this you know free flowing kind of 352 or 3 343 um with the wing backs really dominating the game uh and it, and it's kind of the blueprint that several other teams have tried to follow across Europe um but the Italians are still the best at it um and it's been great to see um and again Mancini is just so experienced and so calm on the sidelines um as well as his bromance with Viale. who's <laughs> it's it's the tears to us all, but um, it's uh, it's great to see. Um, and I'm really looking forward to see what they can do in the next round.
0: On to good old John Bull now. Um, England's two <laughs> win over <laughs> over Germany, and I mean, when the when the team was announced, um, you know, I, I I did begin to favor Germany. I thought, you know, it looked like it was going to be, um, you know, kind of a man for men sort of affair, and. When you line up Goretzka and Cruz up against Phillips and Rice, you know you think you'd fancy the Germans there. I thought uh, Saka was in maybe to try and stifle Gaussen's down the down the Germany's left. Um, I thought you know if Kimmich can get involved on the right hand side, you know England might you know not take enough attention on him and 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 get a little bit of trouble over it. Um, and then obviously you know you're kind of. England fans booing the, the German national anthem and you're like, Jesus, you know, Germany, just please win this. Um, and then over the course of the game, I mean, you know, you like to see Sterling play well. I mean, Maguire and Shaw did really well. You know, players that have been under so much scrutiny over the past couple of years who you kind of have a, a tendency to, you know, you'd like to see them playing well and, um, and getting one over the detractors. Um, Jack Reel as well, obviously coming off the bench. Um and Sterling obviously getting the goal in that um set them on the way and then you see the the son, you know, celebrating Sterling on, on, on the front <laughs> page and like, no, no, you're not allowed to do that. You know, you know, criticized him so much over the years, um, but now he's well on favour. But I mean I I like I don't know if you've seen the the pictures of like Garrett Southgate the manager putting his arm over Gareth Southgate the 1996 penalty game.
3: I mean, yeah. it's, it's so. just tweeted it. oh, It's so cringy, geez. and I,
0: I don't really want to give Southgate too much credit because I thought Germany were really, really poor. Um, like so disappointing, um, throughout the course of the game. And I think once England settled, like they did have that jittery opening five ten minutes, which they tend to do, where they're kind of you know a little bit afraid of 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 what to do. And, like there, there's a palpable tension in, in how they play and I think after a while they just kind of realised that you know these Germans aren't really up to it um, so I mean I don't think you want to give Southgate too much credit but I think the fact that he did stick with Kane and Sterling and brought Grealish on when he did to make the difference I mean Grealish really changed the game down that left hand side to get to get Shaw a little bit more involved um, who ended up having acres of space for that, for that first goal um, I don't know how you uh, how you two thought of it
3: yeah, I, I suppose the way I was looking at it was that on 70 minutes, both managers could reasonably say that things had gone okay yeah. for them. Um, and then it was very much dictated by who got the goals. So like in the same way that Deschamps and Santos are ends justifying the mean managers, uh, Southgate, by his own admission, has modelled this England team on uh, France 2018 and Portugal 2016. He is living that dream at the minute. He is uh, justifying his means by the ends being a win. Mm. So I, I think on 70 minutes, L- Yogi Love could have reasonably said that things have gone fine. Not that they'd torn up trees, but that it had gone fine. Uh, and Southgate could have said the exact same. But obviously, like you said, with, with Grealish coming in and as the game was kind of opening up and he created a bit of space, that ended up making the difference. But I, I don't know if you saw, there was a really interesting couple of tweets done by a uh, fella. Uh, apologies for this inevitable buttering of your name, uh, but Matteo Pilotto uh, on Twitter. Who uh, who did a little bit of analysis that said that um, England England their back three slash five they actually did a really good job in limiting Robin Gosens. Mm. He had his fewest number of open play passes received in Euro twenty twenty, uh, the fewest number of progressive passes received. There was no switches received. So that ball Kimmich to Gosens that was so effective in the Portuguese game. There was no switches, and he had the the uh, the lowest percentage of passes received in the opposition half for Euro 2020, so England really effectively shut down that difference maker that Germany have had in this tournament that has been Gosens, because they haven't been great otherwise, but he really has been kind of the, the the key to everything good about them, so I suppose, while not wanting to overdo the credit for Southgate, he switched his formation back to this formation that had been their, their, their kind of go-to for a little while, or for a good while, and it worked and then they got two goals out of it. So I, I suppose there has to be credit given to him. And as you said, for sticking with people, I mean, the Kane thing, I suppose, is actually debatable. Just yeah. because he got a goal doesn't mean he's really been poor. stuck with. Like, like he, <laughs> he was terrible. Like, he was really, really bad. Um, like, Sterling, I thought, was great. I think he's been England's best player at the tournament. I think if England do go through this so-called weaker side to the final uh, and, heaven forbid, win it, I think he's probably going to win player at the tournament because he's done enough now... On the England side for a team that gets to a final, that he he could do it. He's I think he's been pretty good. And um, so, I, I like, I, I think Souk did enough right that he could he, he is probably due some credit, but you're right, Germany were really the bad version of Germany, they were the kind of French Ooh. version or Hungarian game version. Uh, which turns out if you don't give their left wing back the entirety of the, <laughs> his side of the pitch to attack you, yeah. they're not actually that great. If you do, they're really exciting. But if you actually mark him up and reduce the ways he gets the ball, uh, you 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 can do them a little bit. Um. But it, they looked, even though they're a side in transition, they looked like an old side, I thought, yeah. yesterday. Maybe yeah. that was because of the way Muller, like, burst, well, I say burst, I mean, kind of struggled through for that big chance. But they looked like a side who need four or five players to go. Love is obviously gone, so that's going to help there. But... um. Yeah, it feels like a side at the end of a cycle rather than at the beginning of one, which is weird considering they were definitely at the end of the cycle three years ago at the World Cup.
2: Yeah, and it's it's a shame, really, because you look at the talent coming through. I mean, you could have a, a German team of you know Neuhaus and Naby and, and Sane and Kimmich, and think, yeah, you're you're set for the next five years. But again, it's more similar to the 2010 lineup than or 2014 lineup than anything we've seen and still relying on these almost like false number nines that again, got them over the line in 2014, but you know they 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 still had the closest of this world to to get them over the line in in a few games as well when they were required uh, or even somebody like Sandro Wagner, who's who's retired now, but they don't seem to have that number nine option anymore. Um, And I feel the the England lineup actually played into their hands. If you were to tell Germany that that would be the England lineup prior to the match, Mm -hmm. I think that they would feel that was their best chance to win the game. Um, And the way the game started, especially the first 20, 25 minutes, it it was suiting Germany to a T. But once England grew into the game and and realised that there wasn't really much threat there from the Germans, even though they did have a great chance at 1-0, you know, England did figure it out and get over the line, Um, you know. Uh, particularly happy for Luke Shaw, obviously, who's had a very difficult five or six years between injury and managers and all that sort of thing. So, so it was great to see him perform with the same confidence that he has been in the last 18 months and the impact of Maguire, which I thought would be a disaster starting him considering the injury. And he was obviously rushed back, but um, again, showing, you know, showing a lot of people that he does have potentially a lot more quality than uh, has been um, put out there. So uh, I still think it was a negative formation and lineup and and perhaps one that Southgate shouldn't have gotten away with really it was very much throwback to 2018 and just get me over the line here at at all costs um but because the Germans have been really poor throughout the tournament I I suppose I can understand why he did it Um, um, but when you see the impact Grealish did have when he came on um you know 90 minutes of that would have blown Germany absolutely off the park so You know, in one way, it's it's almost a a paradox to say, you know, he got it right when (laughs) the players he left out were were the ones who really changed the game for him. But I mean, I I think Grealish is an absolutely phenomenal footballer. um, And, you know, um, gutted that he's not in Ireland jersey, obviously. um, But he just does everything you would want from a modern day midfielder, you know, spectacular dribbling. He, He sees the chances all the time. He scores goals. He just does everything you would want. And for England to start that back five while he's sitting on the bench just felt like such a waste. But again, you could argue that, you know, keeping him in reserve is what won them the game. Um, so I, I, I imagine we'll probably see something similar from Southgate in the next round, to be honest, um, just because he does have such a strong bench to rely on, much stronger than 2018, for example. Um but yeah, it was uh, it was it was a tough day on the old Twitter sphere after England <laughs> won because uh, sure was yeah you know Captain Tom in the in the clouds saying you're doing great boss <laughs> it was uh, <laughs> it was a particularly low moment I felt um, but uh, you know Southgate is a decent guy and in fairness it's a likable England squad as yeah. much as you could like an England squad um, mm-hmm. because they have the talent and character. Um, and a lot of these players have proven themselves, not just in the Premier League, but across Europe. Um, so, listen, it's not their fault if Southgate wants to start a back five. That's his, you know, prerogative. But, you know, there aren't many players in this England squad who, if they joined your team tomorrow, you wouldn't you wouldn't have an issue with, you know, because of the, the level of talent they've shown in the last few years, um, which is, you know, back in the day, it was pretty tough to say you'd welcome, you know, a Liverpool or Chelsea or whoever, Man City player into your squad just because you had that. You know, anger and despite towards them. You know, but um, this this time around, it's it's a it's a relatively likable England squad, um, and it's actually a phenomenal squad on paper. I mean, that I don't think you'll see a squ- a stronger bench in. International tournament history than what England had yesterday. Um, so I saw somebody say that's because all the bad players were starting. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, <laughs> that is true. Like it's classic waistcoat here. I had some Belton tweets lined up, and he just butchered them all. But anyway,s yeah. may- maybe in the next round. But um, the-, the only thing I would say is he has run with Saka thing, um, yeah. which you know is is an important point to make. Probably something he wouldn't have done in 2018. So. But again, it shows just the rewards that are there to be had in this squad. If you do take a chance on somebody mm. like that, could have been Sancho, that could have been Grealish, you know, like imagine if they were all starting together and had, you know, like so. It almost kind of every time I do see one of these young players do well for Salga, it's like, well, why isn't this happening more and more and more? And, and why is he reverting back to this desperation to keep things tight like he did in 2018? It's a much different squad to then, you know, so, um, but again, they got through. They've not conceded a goal. Um, so it's 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 very tough to criticise his decisions at the moment.
0: Yeah, and it's funny how quickly um, elements of the, the fan base and the media have kind of gone from earlier in the group stage, you know, giving out about, you know, where's Sancho, where's um, Foden, where's Grealish, to, you know, happy to be pragmatic and cautious. And they're like, now that they've beaten Germany, we're like, okay, cool, this is, this is how we're going about it. We're We're, <laughs> we're happy with that now um and like you said like it is a really gr- likable group of players and i think like we we've, we've said that over the course of the competition and even in the run up um previewing it i mean there are some really good players and there's some great stories and like you know some of the stuff that Sterling has gone through in particular and you know he's fight against racism as well has kind of you know heightened the, the respect a lot of people have for him um so it is nice to see him doing well um looking on to the next round in like they've Ukraine and we'll, we'll get to Ukraine in a second, but I mean, they look absolutely benjacks by the end of the game. Like it was like a scene out of saving private Ryan um, in, 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 in in extra time in between Sweden and Ukraine. Like do you, can you imagine Sokit like just releasing the shackles, like just dumping Sancho, Ford and Grealish, whoever else, Mount throwing them all on um, and not thinking too much about it because you'd imagine like if this was a qualifying game, and England were going in against the Ukraine that had just kind of struggled over a Sweden side that, you know, they'd fancy beating them 4 or 5 nil.
3: Yeah, I suppose if they are looking at it as a near enough foregone conclusion, then you're also thinking about potential semi-final opponents. Denmark also play a back three. Do you get more back three minutes into the squad who have been all of a sudden starting to play back four again? Uh, like, I, I completely get what you're saying, and it would be... I'd imagine for England fans, very heartening to see the cavalry being called off the bench. But I think End is probably right. It'll it'll probably yeah. be pretty similar. You mm. might get Jordan Henderson instead of one of the middle two. Hard to drop either of them, given how good they were. But just to give him minutes, maybe in view of what might come further down the tracks if they do get over the mighty Ukrainian men. But um, I I suppose his inherent his inherent conservatism uh, with a small C as opposed to a big C for in that country. Um, means it'll probably be similar enough. Um, I think like Grealish is probably in a weird position uh, now in that he's proven himself to be such a good game breaker that he might have to keep being a game breaker if that makes sense, as opposed to actually getting a start, especially uh, in this three-four-three. Um, like obviously he could play off the left instead of Saka, but um, it feels like where Grealish fits best isn't where england are going at the minute certainly from the start and that he might be he might be a game breaker off the bench to do exactly what he did uh, during the week so i think we're probably going to see something similar and um, to what we saw against germany with the idea that that might be setting them up for the rest of the tournament so that makes sense yeah and i suppose
2: the only Argument in favor of Southgate, even though it's literally his fault, <laughs> is that Grealish and Sancho and all they, they have very little minutes at an international level, um, compared to the guys he is standing by. Um, Rashford really is the only one who's not starting. Who you would have thought, right? You know, he's got a lot of experience. You know, Henderson, if he wasn't injured, would definitely be in there. Uh, so you know, it it, it makes it even tougher to later in a tournament to to start bringing in these guys um and he'll be sitting there thinking it worked absolutely perfect against germany it you, you know we didn't concede uh you know the back five was perfect especially the tricky reds obviously um everything went uh, as well as he could have hoped um and then when he did have to call on the bench you know they were spectacular so um i think it'll be very very similar um my concern would be probably later down the line whether that'll be enough to get them you know where they want to go but you know for now i think it'll be it'll be plenty good
0: quick word in on phils ukraine um like it wasn't the best of games against sweden and i think everyone was probably expecting that um by the end of of extra time you're kind of you know getting up in your seat a little bit in anticipation of penalties and then artem Dobvik... um 121st minute <laughs> to win it for Ukraine. Um, I mean, it was, uh, the amount of fouling in the game, and it was just such a stop start, uh, sort of a game, like it never really flowed right. And it was a, um, definitely, um, I think if, if Southgate or any of the England players were watching it, I think they were probably delighted with how it turned out. Um, one thing, and I'm not sure if you saw it live, but the reaction on Twitter was so 50 50. I mean, um, in response to marcus danielson 's red card yeah i 've never seen a
2: reaction that polarizing I, to a red I've, card I've to be honest never, i 've
0: never because I wasn 't on Twitter at the time, and I just kind of had half an eye on the game um, and I looked up and I saw the replays, and I was like that 's a hundred percent a red card, and then I tweeted as such, and then like people were replying to me like are you are you crazy like this you know there was no intent, it was you know completely accidental, and I was just watching the replays and obviously slow motion probably biased my view of things um, whereas in real time it might necessarily have looked as bad but i mean i thought it was a stone wall i don't know what you think
3: i thought it was definitely a red card i mean i cannot abide the um the idea that people said that there was no intent or he was just trying to play the ball that doesn't uh, like absolve you from any fouls like it's the exact same thing that if you go in for a slide tackle and you're trying to get the ball but the fella jinx it by you and you kick him it's it's a free like, you can't end up in a situation where your knee or your where your stu- studs first on, on the top of a fella's knee. Like, that was extremely dangerous, whether he meant to or not. You can give red cards a dangerous play, and that was dangerous. Um, so, like, I thought it was a definite red card. I could just about see the arguments of people saying it wasn't. I have no truck, though, with the idea that there was no intent mm. uh, and that, that he didn't mean to do that. That, that Like, in, in, intent isn't in the rule book. That's not part of the thing. I don't know a situation where you can end up studs first on a fellow's knee that isn't a red card.
2: Yeah, and and this notion that players don't have a control of their follow through is just bizarre, yeah. especially for a, a slide tackle slide tackle like that. Um, the only thing I would say is it looked even worse slowed down, which is yeah, I did. suppose the whole VAR argument, especially not so much for tackles like that, but especially when it comes to like handballs in the box when the when the ball is literally hit at you from a meter away and it shows you a fraction of your lift in your arm. Um so I'm I've never been really fully on board with this VAR slowing everything down to about five percent if it's real real time. But even if you if a if a ref had seen that in full time or real time rather, he still would have given it. I mean he just he had control of his follow through and he still ends up on the guy's knee. I mean, it's just a red card for sure. Um, and the reaction on Twitter. And then they had this weird thing after, which is classic Twitter where they compared another tackle later on, which was (laughs) completely nothing related to thing. The guy won the ball. There was very little follow through. It was just a natural contact, which will happen in tackles. And they said, well, is this not a red card? It's like, isn't this the thing people don't want where everything, every little thing isn't analyzed to death and yet it is. Um, and, you know, it's a shame because I think it's actually been a decent tournament for V or similar to the world cup in 2018, where we're yeah. somehow not analyzing, you know, somebody being a millimeter offside because of their shoulder or whatever I mean there's been a few close calls and it's all been decided very quickly but there seems to be a mandate to decide things very quickly with VAR which I I personally am all for because I think that's my biggest issue with it standing around for four or five minutes and you still get an inconclusive answer by the end but for me that Sweden red card it's it's an absolute no-brainer I think once a referee sees that on a screen how could he not give it you know.
0: We're happy to be joined by Danish football journalist Kenneth Jensen to take a closer look at Denmark's Euro campaign so far. Thanks for coming on, Kenneth. Hope you're well.
1: Uh, thank you and, and thank you for, for having me, Lex.
0: um So it's been a campaign to remember, really, thus far for a. Uh, a variety of reasons for denmark um copenhagen obviously one of the host cities has have been a, a tremendous host city to watch um a talented side on paper that maybe uh, quite a few people overlooked beforehand coming into the tournament um some incredible performances and goals so far in the competition um but i'm afraid to, to start on a, on a more somber note obviously um surrounding the, the christian ericsson incident, and i mean um, to just take you back to that to that 43-minute mark um, against Finland in the first game, I mean, I was watching it live on television and just the sheer kind of shock and horror of the whole scene, um, I, I think it's something that's going to stick with me forever. It must have been a really emotional and scary time for the Danish fan base watching it all unfold before the rise.
1: Sure. Um, so, just to go back to your point... Uh, <clears throat> We've waited, I think, seven or eight years to host this European competition. Um, We have a really, really talented football side. Um, And then the star player for the team suffers a cardiac arrest on the pitch. Um, I was there with my mom, actually. I was not working, um, so I I brought my mom to the game. That was the first time she'd been in park. So it was for everyone, it was supposed to be a a joyous occasion um, that just happened to turn into something that, you know, where football was completely irrelevant. And, you know, for my part, you know, the Denmark, uh, how do you say, uh, Denmark's participation in the, in the tournament could have ended right there because it wasn't about football anymore. Mm. It, was, um, it was about uh, life or death. It was about the team, um, seeing one of their, their friends and, and um, teammates um, fighting for his life. So it was it was a, a complete shock and just um, really tough I think for for a lot of people, but hopefully yeah. uh, Ericsson is is alive and um, um, seemingly doing fine. So that that's the good thing. That's the thing I take from this. Yeah. Uh, he he got the help he needed and and he's he's doing well now, which yeah. uh, is is the important thing.
0: Yeah, and I mean, the aftermath has been has been so powerful. I mean, you had the, obviously the the scenes of fans chanting his name in the games afterwards, um, the banners and the crowds not only in in Copenhagen but all around Europe. Um, I mean, even kind of on a, on a wider level. I mean, my local community, you know, we've local sports teams here in Ireland, and I'm sure all over the world now are kind of raising awareness about, um, uh, yeah. the 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 use of defibrillators and and you know becoming more um educated on cpr so there has been a hugely overwhelming wave of positivity that came out of it
1: which is important i mean that's what you want to take from this learn from this i mean uh, what 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 can you do to uh maybe not prevent you can't prevent something like that but you can for, for every minute that goes by um if you use a defibrillator, you know, you, you have a, I think it's, they say like 10%, 10% chance of, of, um, how do you say uh, saving a person's life goes away. Uh, the longer you wait, if you wait a minute, that's 10%, uh, using a def- defibrillator. So you need to use that. You need to have that. And I think, was it in England? They, 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 they are now talking or, about having defibrillators all around, uh, sporting areas, yeah. which, i mean that that's that's
0: the what you want to see happen i mean from this and i suppose on the team itself i mean it was it was tough to watch um you know the the scenes with simon kayer coming over to to Ericsson's, um partner and consoling her and it's must have been a hugely difficult um time for the players and especially having to having to turn around so quickly and come back and play the the second half
1: yeah, well, that game never should have been played yeah. to its end at that night. I mean, that was one of the most idiotic things ever. Um, the players just saw one of their friends basically die on the pitch, and they were told, "Now he's doing fine. Go out and finish the game." That's uh, that's just a shocking decision by UEFA, to be honest. And um, and I know UEFA is saying they were they weren't pushing and or anything, but but from what Kasper Juhlman is saying, um, who I absolutely trust when he's saying that mm. he's saying there were two options either play now or or play tomorrow at, at, um, at 12 12 in the in the uh, how do you say 12, 12 a.m 12 p.m i don't know yep. um yep. yeah and um i mean that that's not that's never uh something traumatized players should um have to even think about they should get uh, immediate uh, help from psychologists, uh, crisis psychology. Um, and I think even though it's not in the protocols, we've uh, uh, let the Danish team massively down, to be honest. Mm.
0: Yeah, it was, I mean, even the, the response here in Ireland, um, a lot of our, our pundits on television were just kind of um, gobsmacked, really, as what was essentially... Um, a kind of an ultimatum given to the Danish players, just play now or, or basically um, concede the game um, I suppose in, in the aftermath following the, the Finland game, I mean the, the beginning to the Belgium game was very impressive, they, they got out of the traps really quickly and then following that up with a, a really impressive win against Russia um, which qualified them for the last 16, do you think the kind of waves of support and, and positivity surrounding the team kind of united them in a way
1: well I I want I want to just go back to to the, between the the Finland game and the Belgium game nobody knew what the Danish team had you know mm. it, it was a total question mark because can they recover from this mentally and and uh, and they did you know they went out on the pitch and and put everything on the line against Belgium mm. and they dominated Belgium the first 45 minutes was was electric on on, on the stands on the pitch they were awesome they were you know, they were just all over Belgium, and then there was this guy. Maybe you've heard of him. I think his name is De Bruyne. <laughs> they put him in and, uh, <laughs> to, for the second half, and, and he just he just turned it around. He's a pretty good player. Um, and but you know, yes, the energy and just um, the emotions and and the togetherness, all of that is true. But what is also being a little bit forgotten in all of this. Is the fact that denmark has a really good side and they had that before the <laughs> tournament yeah. remember they they beat austria 4-0 in austria in march you know they just took uh, italy to 120 minutes of football so and and uh, they last year they drew and won against England. they won at wimpley i mean how many teams win at wimpley against england so this is a really good danish team and um to before the tournament, I would say I'm not surprised they are where, where they are now in the quarterfinal. But obviously, with everything that happened with Ericsson, you never know how how people react to that. So that to me, that is kind of a surprise that they they were able to gather themselves and 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 just because they they've been excellent for free free games uh, free straight games. They 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 won you know expected goals against Belgium. They dominated Russia, and you you saw the probably saw the game against Wales. It's it's the only team that won by four goals in in the in the yeah. round of uh, sixteen, or it's it the round of eight? I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, so it's just a really good team.
3: Kenneth, you're you're completely right there when you when you talk about Denmark's expectations before the tournament, and it felt like certainly in the media over here, anyone who wasn't uh, saying that Turkey were a dark horse, were saying that Denmark were potentially a dark horse because they have this kind of solid uh defence solid defence with some very good attacking players. Um it's not that long since you were rubbing shoulders with the likes of Ireland at international <laughs> level, not just in in uh, in qualification campaigns and obviously that World Cup playoff where uh, we w- we won't talk about what happened in Dublin that <laughs> night. But even in the Nations League in in, yeah. in 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 the second tier, which which suggests at least that you were in a broadly similar league to ourselves. But now you're not unexpectedly in a European quarter final. You're in a tier one uh, team in Nations League, as you said, one in, in, in Wembley against England. Um, what sort of journey has this team been on to this point? Has there been anything that's been specifically done to get them here? Or is it just the kind of logical conclusion of a really good generation of players coming to uh, their peak at, at, at a good time?
1: Well, well some, of it, some of it is, is the last part you, sh- you spoke about with Simon Kerr and Hojbjerg still a I think he's 25, and and Delaney, and and some of the players who are who are kind of reaching their peak. But I would probably, I, I would, I would um, attest it to the coaching. Uh, to be honest, um, what, the games you spoke about against Ireland, and there were too many games without chances and and without goals against Ireland. That was his <laughs> team, and um, and and I kind of the, the best description I can give is he built it. He built the house, you know. He built the walls. He he put he, he built a a nice house. And then when Casper Yulman came in, he started decorating the house. Decorating the house. He he made it sexy. He made it uh, comfortable. He made it uh, exciting. He made it uh, uh, good looking. Um, that's what he's done with this team. Because if you look at the Haarhede team and the the Yulman team, it's a little bit of the same but when you look at the wing backs for instance you've seen your Kimel who's been sensational at this uh, tournament Daniel Vassar, Jens Tryer at the other wing back they are thinking forward they are passing the ball forward and then you got a uh, you got Damsgaard, who's a great player between defense and midfield he finds the little space uh, Heubia has been since I think he's been maybe the best Danish player this tournament he has three assists and his his passing has been so crisp um and there's just there's still the fighting spirit, but they've added the flair and the quality, and and just there's so many so many layers to this Danish team. I think.
3: Yeah, and one of the players you you mentioned there, kind of just want to uh, touch on Damsgaard for a minute. Um, but I, personally speaking, and I think speaking for a lot of people. Certainly, outside of Denmark and maybe outside of, of Sampdoria, fans weren't overly familiar with Damsgaard. He was talked about in in previews. The Athletic uh, over here had a really good uh, preview piece, a kind of a scouting report of players to watch, and they kind of tipped him up as a guy who could have a big tournament. Um, but he he kind of broke into the side during the tournament. He, he's like he didn't he didn't start the, the finish game, for example, uh, as first choice. Uh, do you think now he's become quickly one of the more important players in that Danish squad? He seems to really add something a little bit different, a bit of a spark to him.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's no—I would be very surprised if if he doesn't start a Saturday against the Czech Republic because he has that little bit of flair, and uh, what he does well is he, he's not a—he's not a runner. He's a technician, so he moves in from from the left or or moves down to the pitch and, and connects, you know, the midfield and. and 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 the striking uh, and the striker. So he he is very important in in the fact that that he's able to find the room between the defense and and the offense. And if you look at the first goal uh, that Denmark scored against Wales, it's a pass from Joachim Mele for for Damsgaard who finds the space between their their defense and their midfield, turns around and passes to Dolberg who takes a couple of of uh, touches before he fires it in. And he and Dahlberg actually, actually they've had that in previous national team games as well as Saturday a really good partnership because it seems like Damsgard is looking for Dahlberg and remember that Dahlberg was close to scoring with with his back foot uh, also in that first half also from a Damsgaard pass pass so he is a he's a really smart player he was talked he's been talked about for, for a lot in Denmark he came I think he came uh, through at Nordjylland um, when he was only 16. He, had, he didn't really have um, how do you say an, a, a, a big impact in terms of goals and assists until his last season at North Shaland, which was uh, uh, well, yeah, one year ago he, he he moved to Sampdoria. He really put it together there, and you could see you could just see the growth and and the, and the quality. And he's, he's he's yeah, he's only twenty years old, and there's another player that, that Denmark haven't really showcased yet is Andreas Olsen, he plays for Bologna. So if you get to see him, um, look for that left foot because he he's he's a really good, is a quality player and and that that's kind of you know where I think Denmark ha- Denmark has really added the quality, say in uh, because they didn't have have that against in the games against Ireland a couple of years ago they they couldn't put someone in the game and that that could change the game like Damsko has has been doing, uh, Andresko Olsen can can do it as well he's got a cracking left foot when he. When he pulls in from the right and and finishes, um, scored a ton of goals like that for North as well, um, and has 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 shown it in flashes for for Bologna as well as the national team. And he hasn't really been showcased yet, which I think speaks to Denmark's quality this uh, mm. this time around.
0: Another player that has stood out for me, um, defensively, has been Joachim Mela, and I mean. The wing-backs have been a huge uh, position over the course of the tournament. You know, we've had Robert, Robin Gosens for, for Germany has has been really mm-hmm. impressive. Um, Denzel Dumfries for the Netherlands has stood out. But Mela has been really impressive as well for um, for Denmark. And he's only 24 yeah. as well. So he looks like a, yeah. a, an exciting player in this crop.
1: Yeah, and, and just the thing I spoke about before between Harreide and Jungman, Harreide didn't use uh, Joachim Mela even though he was quite, a, quite impressive for the under-21 so when Juleman took over, the first player, he he, he put in that left wing-back position, I think, was, was Joachim Bele. And you've seen that. He's played 14 games, I think, and has already scored four times for the Danish national team. Think about that. That's a defender. So, yeah, him and Gosens actually played together in Atalanta. That's that's kind of sick to think, you know, they have two, two wing-backs who are that good. Um, but, yeah, he's been absolutely sensational. I think... Um, He's been, he's been, he's just, he's a runner, you know, he's, uh, he runs uh, 90 minutes, uh, just all through, just going up, going down, going up, going down. And that's, that's tough on the defenses. And I think when you look at the second half Denmark has played, it was in the second half, they, they broke down Russia. It was in the second half, they broke down Wales. I mean, they, they just they play with a lot of intensity and, and part of that is your Kim because he's just, he's just awesome. I mean, he's just a runner. Um, and he's, he's, he's also really good with his feet, but, but I think his main quality is actually that, that he's, he's forward thinking and, and he's just, he's such a great runner. Um, should look at him, look at, try, try and just, uh, zoom in on him for a couple of minutes and, and look at how many runs he 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 makes during a game. That that's pretty pretty impressive.
3: Kenneth, I have to say, probably my favourite stadium of all the host stadium that we've had across this kind of quite unique Euros has been the parking. Um, the, just the atmosphere, the, the, the amount of fans that they've been getting in, obviously helped along with the fact that Denmark were playing so many games at home. But but even the games now in, in the last 16, the game that was held there had such a great atmosphere on its own. You mentioned that you went with your to, to the, to the to the first game what sort of impact has being a host nation had on Denmark we were due to have a couple of games here in Dublin yeah, which we yeah. lost because we couldn't guarantee the, the crowds and we were, we were quite disappointed about that so we've been looking on quite jealously but I think mm-hmm. no more so than at Copenhagen it, it's been amazing has it had a positive impact on the country in general and helped pull them into the tournament
1: even more? Yeah I mean it, it, it's just been awesome I mean there's there's such a vibe and such a love for the football and for the football team and just with the pandemic, you know, that's what everybody has been craving. I mean, just um, being there, enjoying yourself, watching sports, and and just dreaming. I mean, that that's that's what what we're doing at the moment. Everyone is dreaming. Um, you you all re- you probably remember in 1992. You know, the Danish team won, even though they weren't even supposed to be there. And the, you know, the vibe is kind of the same. I'm not. I'm not. Uh, i <laughs> It's difficult even to say say loud, but I mean, it's, <laughs> the the vibe is is kind of the same because there are so many red shirts and just there's so much love for the football team and and where I I work and the things we write, uh, a lot of people are reading it and enjoying it and there's just uh, a great buzz around the team and love for Ericsson as well. I mean, that's mm. that's also what what people are good at remembering. You know, basically the motto is, I think. Uh, one for all, all for Eriksson. Um, and so that, that's kind of nice, I think.
0: Uh, Kenneth, looking ahead, I mean, we don't want to get too ahead of ourselves looking at a, a potential semi-final fixture at Wembley, but you do have the Czech Republic now next in the quarterfinals. And I mean, the Czechs were really impressive in the, in the group stage and um, had a bit of a shock win over the Netherlands, but not necessarily a team you would fear going into a, a quarterfinal.
1: I mean, you know, Netherlands or, or Czech Republic, um, very different teams. Um, the more hardworking team and the more disciplined team of the Czechs, um, with a little bit of quality up front with Patrick Sik, as well as uh, Thomas Sutcek and Kufal on, on the on the back. So I mean, they, they do have some quality, but if you are to go all the way, I mean, weren't you supposed to beat a team like the Czech Republic? So I mean, looking at the game with the, the the way the Danish players have been playing and, and how the team has have, have really just performed, this is a game they have to win, um, I think. It will be a tough game, no doubt, and Denmark can lose the game, but I think they will be disappointed if, if they weren't to, to, to win the game against the Czech Republic. Um, so I think... I also would have rated Denmark's chances against uh, Holland a little bit because it, yeah. it's a team that that does give a lot of space because they want to attack so ferociously. So, um, but I think you know it, it will be a tough game and it will probably it won't it won't be there won't be a ton of chances because what what the Czech Republic is really good at and you saw that against Holland is they they want to match spoil you know to some extent they want to match spoil and then see what what kind of opportunities two or three opportunities in the game they can create for themselves and they're gonna take that, you know. So that's kinda of how they they approach things. They're very disciplined and hardworking. So a ton of respect for them, but if if you want if you want or go if you want to go all the way, it's a game you've got to win.
0: So do you think the Danish fan base are kind of taking it one game at a time or are some people maybe looking beyond the checks and, and possibly uh visiting Wembley to, to meet England?
1: I'll um, the Danish team and the Danish coach have been been saying for uh, uh, well just when when the draw was made when when the Czechs won the game they were they were saying they would pre- prefer to play Holland which I don't, I'm not sure I believe that but that's that's kind of a, a way to to sort of uh, empathize that um, it's going to be a tough game and, yeah. and they they're going to have to uh, really be at the best to win it and also you know it's in Baku so the temperature is going to be difficult maybe for a danish team that's not used to uh, 30 degrees uh, celsius um so so i mean that could that could play a, a little bit of a part in the game um but i just i just kind of like the vibe of this team and i think that denmark is is going to win the game
0: confident so but uh I mean, I can definitely speak for Phil, I think, when I say it, we'll, uh, we'll be cheering on Denmark against the Czech Republic. So, uh, Kenneth, thanks very much for coming on this evening. We really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. And um, hopefully Ireland will, will um, get to uh, <laughs> one of the Euros or the World Cups soon. Respect, man, respect, 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 man. So we leave it
0: there, so, okey-doke. Good night (laughs) and God bless. (laughs)